Today's uh, sermon title is The Atonement and Sacrifice. The Atonement and Sacrifice. It's going to be a two-part sermon series today and next week. Uh, Our text today will be uh, from Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 23 through the end of the chapter. Next week, our text will be from Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. They go uh, together, and so I'll make mention of that at the, in, in the introduction, but our focus today is going to be primarily in Hebrews chapter 9 and a little bit of chapter 10 as well. Let me read to you both of those passages. I'll, I'll begin with Hebrews 9, uh, beginning verse 23, and then I will read the Matthew passage as well today. From Hebrews 9, here once again the very word of God. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but, to him, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for man to die once, but after this the judgment... So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. And now from Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things for the elders, from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray. Father, with thanksgiving, we look into Your Word and we see the teachings of Paul as it relates to Christ, our Redeemer, at Your very presence in the heavenly places, things not made with hands, but rather by the Word and power of your, you, Father, bringing them into his existence, and Christ is seated at your right hand, having sprinkled his blood on your seat to cover our sins. For that we are most grateful. 
We pray as we consider these thoughts that you would enliven in us the the great benefit that we have in our salvation of being children of the living God, that this redounds into eternity to our benefit and for your glory. Father, with these things in mind, we come to your word in humility, asking that you would change us by goading us to love and good works as we contemplate and meditate upon the salvation you've wrought in our lives. And we ask these things and give thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, today and next week, I've chosen to divert from our study through 2 Samuel. And I want to consider some of the ramifications of the, intercar- of the incarnation of the only begotten Son of, Jesus, of God, Jesus Christ. Also today, during the Sunday school hour, we shall consider the contributions of Anselm of Canterbury, uh, his contributions to the church in the late 11th and early 12th centuries. It is one of his contributions, his articulation of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus for the sins of men that would alter the focus of the church. This doctrine of Christ as a penal substitute had not been the focus of a major church theologian until Anselm took it up, took it upon himself to write Cur Deus Homo, or Why God Became Man. Not only was Anselm's articulation of this doctrine influential in the church in his day, it was in many ways one of the foundations that aided in supporting the Protestant Reformation 300 years after his death. It was Anselm's articulation of this doctrine that the sola of the Reformation, sola Christus, would spring. In this season of Advent, it's appropriate to ponder the question Anselm asked and answered, why God became man. And today we shall see how the Apostle Paul answered this question in Hebrews 9 and 10. And then next week, we shall consider some of the consequences of knowing that answer as taught by our Lord Jesus from Matthew 16. So let us begin with Paul's teaching in Hebrews 9 and 10. And yes, I do believe Paul is the author of Hebrews, though I know that's disputed. I will refer to him as the author. That's been my practice, but I did want to make that acknowledgement that I know that's a disputed uh, situation. The Apostle Paul's teaching from Hebrews 9 assumes that God's justice requires blood atonement for the remitting of sin. The word atonement does not appear in the New Testament with one possible exception, and I'll make mention of that in a few minutes. But it does appear, the word atonement, 89 times in the Old Testament with 47 of those occurrences in the book of Leviticus alone. The word atonement literally means to cover over. This is the same word used in Genesis when Noah and his sons were building the ark and they covered over the ark with pitch to waterproof the ark. Same word. The reason the word atonement is used so prolifically in the Old Testament, and particularly in the book of Leviticus, is that the Ark of the Covenant, which contained, among other things, the Ten Commandments, was a physical representation of God's holiness among the people. Furthermore, It was the place God would come and sit among his people. Thus the term seat 
is used to describe the place where God would come and abide with His people. This was not like the seats we're using today or we have in our homes. This was a box that was overlaid in pure gold and had sculptures of angelic beings overshadowing on the top. And though somewhat small, it was ornate. And because it was overlain with gold, it never tarnished. The Bible, however, does not merely call this a seat, but calls it the mercy seat. And I can't recall anywhere in the Scripture where this seat does not have the modifier mercy preceding it. I believe it is always termed the mercy seat in the Bible because this is an attribute of God that cannot be divorced from Him. It is called the mercy seat because God is merciful. When God abides anywhere, His attributes and all of them accompany Him. The attributes of God never wane and are never absent from Him. They are who He is, and so where He resides, His attributes of judgment, justice, as well as mercy, grace, and love are always present. Always. When God would descend to fill the tabernacle or temple with His presence in the Old Covenant, it was both a fearful and a wonderful thing to see and experience. Fearful because judgment attends His presence. It's His attribute. And wonderful because His mercy and grace also attend His presence. Now back to the word atonement. The Ark of the Covenant was a mercy seat when it is covered or overlaid with the sacrificial blood of animals that had been slain for the sins of individual men. The book of Leviticus instructed the Israelites that on certain days of the year, men were to bring spotless animals to the tabernacle or temple. They were to hold those animals with their hands while the priests would slay the animals. As the blood of the animals poured out and the animals died, some of their blood was taken into the inner room of the tabernacle or temple and sprinkled on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. This represented judgment by God being satisfied for the sins of the individual who held the animal at its death. His sins were imparted to the animal, and the animal's death was the wrath of God being poured out on those sins. The animal's death was a substitute death for the sinner who truly deserved death. Unfortunately for the sinner, that blood was insufficient to completely purge the guiltiness of the sinner. And here again, the Apostle Paul's description of the substitutionary atonement by Jesus Christ on our behalf becomes more clear. Here again, the passage that was read from chapter 9. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. 
He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So what was insufficient in the killing of, uh, of lambs and, and other animals as sacrifices in the Old Covenant became fully paid by Christ once for all as He dies on the cross for our sins. Now one might argue that, that could not any man offer himself as a substitute to God for the sins of another? Wouldn't that be possible? For instance, couldn't Elder Hill offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of Elder Fout? Wouldn't that satisfy God's wrath and judgment for the sins of Elder Hill? Or excuse me, Elder Fout? The answer is no. First, a sinner, an unclean person, cannot be a substitute to appease God's wrath for another unclean person. Paul wrote in Romans 5, beginning in verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Paul is referring to Adam and Christ here. Adam being the one whose offense brought judgment to all men, and Christ's sacrifice being that which results in in justification of life. Paul goes on to write, Moreover, the law entered that the offenses might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One has to be washed in the blood of a clean substitute to be made clean. No man, as a son of Adam, is clean. For by one man's offense, Adam's sin, judgment came to all men. So also by one man are sinful men made righteous. That is, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Now earlier in Romans 5, Paul writes these words that bring clarity to the blood atonement by the righteous and clean man, Jesus Christ, for us who are sinful men, unclean beginning in verse 6, Romans 5. For when we were still without strength, in in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if then we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now, I mentioned earlier that there is one place in the New Testament where the word atonement possibly occurs. It's in verse 11 of Romans chapter 5, the verse that I just read to you. Let me read it again. You didn't hear the word atonement, but I'll explain. Verse 11, And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now received the reconciliation. That word reconciliation there in the King James Version reads atonement. The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus on the mercy seat of God in heaven. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the atonement. Now all of this is critical to our understanding of God's atoning for our sin. Yet there is one more element that has a very prominent part of our understanding of the advent of Jesus. Paul's description in Romans 5.18 that through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. There is an exception to the all men, and that exception is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not share in the sins of Adam. How is it that Jesus was not tainted by sin? The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul's explaining that Christ was never a sinner, but he became sin for us. He took upon himself our sins, not his own, and died as an atoning sacrifice for all those sins that were placed upon him. If all men are guilty in Adam's sin, as Paul wrote in Romans 5, how is it that Jesus isn't guilty as well? How is it that he is the spotless sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world, as Paul writes in Hebrews? The answer lies in a critical doctrine of our faith that we celebrate this time of year the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It is essential to our faith. Essential. According to the Scriptures, the sin of Adam passes from generation to generation by the seed of men. Men, not women, men. We men pass our sinful natures to our children. Brethren, that should sober us up a lot. We are the ones that are culpable. Now, you didn't ask for that. I understand that. But that's the case. That's the circumstance in which we live. And it's imperative that we bring to bear in our, the, the minds of our children the importance of repentance. If for no other reason than we men brought sin into their lives. All men are guilty in Adam's sin. And how is it that Jesus isn't guilty as well? It's because he was born of a virgin. According to the Scriptures, again, the sin of Adam passes from generation to generation by the seed of men. That has been and shall remain the consequence of Adam's federal headship until Jesus returns to earth in the final judgment when he puts sin and death away for good. That day is coming, but it's not yet here. 
Jesus escaped that consequence by God's miraculous act of having a virgin conceive him by the Holy Spirit, a son named Emmanuel, that is, God with us, who was and is of the very holy essence of God the Father, which we just confessed in the Nicene Creed, of one substance. Jesus knew no sin, as Paul exclaims in in 2 Corinthians 5.21, because he was not conceived by a son of Adam. He was spotless from birth and lived a spotless, sinless life. And so so when he was sent to the cross, he was the perfect substitutionary atonement for all those who put their trust and faith in him alone. His blood has been sprinkled on the mercy seat of God in heaven. He has covered over our sins that we might enter into the Holy of Holies, justified and sanctified before God. Have you ever asked yourself the question in the garden, why did God kill animals and then cover Adam and Eve with animal skins when they, when he, after He judged them? I mean, he places His judgment on them, but then He covers them with animal skins. He's pointing to what Christ would do. Animals had to shed their blood for the remission of the sins of Adam and Eve to be covered in garments of flesh. Brethren, you are covered in the garment of flesh named Jesus Christ. He died that your sins would be covered. And that act of God in the garden points to the work of Christ on our behalf. To those who call Jesus Lord and Savior, your sins have been remitted and removed as far as the east is from the west, according to the Scriptures. Now I want us to hear from Hebrews chapter 10, how the Apostle Paul describes Jesus in comparison to the Old Testament sacrifices of atonement. Beginning in verses, uh, I'll be reading uh, Hebrews 10, 1-4, and then 11-18. through 18. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For, they, uh, for then would they have not ceased to be offered. For the worshiper once purified would have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a, remained, a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Verse 11, And every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made a footstool. For by one offering, He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after He had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put My laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then He adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, 
There is no longer an offering for sin. Brethren, think about the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. It contained the law of God, didn't it? It also contained Aaron's rod, which budded, was eternally budding. Okay, That's, That points to the, the tree of life that Adam and Eve were kept from in the garden. And we will be restored to, read the last two chapters of Revelation, the Bible starts in a garden and ends in a garden. And the tree of life is in both places. In the beginning, Adam and Eve are kept from it after their sin. But we are restored to the tree of life in the book of Revelation. Brethren, the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of heart, the man of heart, the heart of the man. The man who puts his trust in Christ. His law is there and the life-giving Spirit is there. Both are there. But it has to be overlaid. This precious gold seat has to be overlaid with the blood of a Redeemer. And Jesus Christ has placed His blood at the mercy seat of God in heaven for us. Atonement has been made and we are the recipients. Salvation is Jesus Christ because He's perfected it with His substitutionary blood that has been sacrificed for the sins of the world and overlays the mercy seat of God in heaven. Furthermore, because He was and is an eternal being, the second person of the Godhead, the same essence as the Father, His atoning sacrifice is an eternal sacrifice. There's no need for it to be repeated. To those who are recipients of an eternal sacrifice, eternal life is a necessary and beneficial consequence of His atonement. We will live eternally because the eternal Son of God has eternally taken our sins away and given us newness of life. In the season of Advent, remember that Jesus was born of a virgin that he would not be tainted by the sin of Adam. Remember, he lived a sinless life that when his time came, he would offer himself as a spotless sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. Remember, too, that because he is the eternal Son of God, that his sacrifice is an eternal sacrifice that makes certain that eternal life can be had by those who call him Lord and Savior. And as we come to the table of the Lord, we proclaim that sacrifice to one another and to God the Father that it was given for us. That we would have redemption. That our sins would be forgiven. That we would be able to come close. Yea, even through the veil to the very Holy of Holies. The very presence of God for eternity. Let us pray.